Dominus Fobiscum, amigos, and welcome to another episode of the Heavenly Toast podcast. Today we're reflecting on the readings for the fourth Sunday of Lent, or uh, Laetare Sunday, Rejoicing Sunday as it's often called, so you're probably going to see the optional rosed vestments uh, kind of floating around today. And in today's gospel reading, we have what's quite possibly one of the most famous readings in all of the Bible, one of the most famous parables, certainly. And it's the parable of the prodigal son. So something like this has a tendency to become a little bit familiar in our minds. We've heard sort of this story spoken by different people, read by different place, read in different places by different people and everything. And it can be kind of easy to sort of gloss over, uh, at least from what I've found. So I think it's kind of helpful every now and then to take a step back and this time that I heard it proclaimed, there was a little bit of a difference that I noticed that I had never noticed before, um, something that I had recognized and knew. And I think we really only get that if we flip on the Jewish spectacles, so to speak, and we kind of uh, view things through Jewish lenses as the people that Jesus was speaking to would hear this. So the story begins that the there's a father, he has two sons, and the first son says, Father, give to me the share of my inheritance which should come to me. And again, this is kind of something that's commonly brought up in a lot of talks, is that in ancient Jewish culture, this would have meant basically the equivalent of, you're dead to me, you'd be more useful to me if you were dead, so why don't you just die and give me the resources that you would give to me if you had uh, passed away. Just give me the inheritance now as if you were dead. It's an incredibly offensive thing to say in this time and in this place. Uh, it would be now as well, I think, if you were to say that, but even more so, uh, particularly because the commandment to honor father and mother was um, so cherished and so forefront in people's minds. So there's that aspect of it. So the father gives the son his share of the inheritance, and the son goes away for, uh, to a distant land. And a severe famine strikes, so all of a sudden everything is, is horrible. After the son has freely spent everything, he now has nothing to the point where he's reduced to destitution, to the point where he hires himself out to tend swine. Here's another part where the Jewish lenses really help us. Swine were considered to be impure animals. That's why you uh, there's certain kosher regulations that have to do with pork um, and everything like that. So tending swine would have been a very lowly and very disgusting task at this point. And a Jewish person who would be tending swine would be considered ritually impure. So they would be separated from God because they wouldn't really be able to take part in a lot of the Jewish activities because of this ritual impurity. Add to it the fact that he's in a distant place, so he's probably working for Gentile people, which means that he's probably working on the Sabbath. Um, so this is pretty much as bad as it could possibly get for a Jewish person. Um, he's utterly, utterly separated from the life of faith in the Jewish community, 
and he's sitting there looking at the pods that the swine feed on, and he's saying, if only I could eat my share of these. It's difficult to think of such a disgusting state for a lot of us here in 21st century America, where life is pretty comfortable for the most part. This man is reduced to the worst kind of destitution. And by leaving the father, he has certainly left that life of grace. But we see not only does he leave that life of grace, but he hires himself out to this slavish, really awful condition job that is menial and horrible. And I can't help but kind of think of the story in Genesis, the story of the fall, where not only do Adam and Eve make this decision that separates them from the father, but they try to come back on their own means. Not only do they leave the heavenly father, but then they try to brood away and fix things on their own power. They sew together fig leaves, and it only serves to increase the separation in between them. Not only are they separated because of sin, but there's also now a certain level of physical barrier even between them now. So the prodigal son comes back, and he asks for forgiveness, and he has this whole thing in his mind that he's going to say, and the father reaches out, runs out, embraces him, and doesn't even let him finish his, his pre-rehearsed apology, and far, far exceeds anything that the son was even willing to ask for. He's restored to sonship. There's a robe and a ring and sandals, and the fatted calf is slaughtered, and there's a feast and a great festival, a great party given in this son's honor. We have the other son who hears what's going on from a long ways off, and he refuses to enter the house when he asks and receives the news that it is his, his brother who's come back. I can't help but look at this story and kind of see a microcosm of the human condition, honestly, the human's flight from God in a certain way. On the one hand, you have we who have this desire for unlimited agency, for freedom without boundaries and without apology. We have this twisted-up desire to go out and do our own thing. Lord, just give me what I need, and I'll be fine on my own. We quickly find out that, you know, that lifestyle, one, it's not fulfilling, there's so much that's lacking in it. And not only that, but when we try to fix the problem on our own, we find that we just get driven deeper and deeper into despair. On the other hand, we have the older son, who's with the father always, but is not actually taking part in the divine life. The father says, you are with me always, and everything that I have is yours. But the son hasn't been availing himself of that love and that sonship. And he certainly doesn't seem like he's been communicating well with the father at all. It seems like 
Although he's been there with the father, the lines of communication haven't been open, and it's been all about what the father can give this older son. When we look at these two sons, I can't help but think this is the human condition in all of its brokenness. Either we are going off on our own, trying to be our own person, do our own thing in this wild and crazy way of unlimited agency, or we're viewing our father not as a father, but as somebody whose rules we have to follow, and who, in a certain sense, impedes on our freedom, but we won't, we're unwilling to leave for whatever reason. But this isn't what God calls us to. And in both cases, this parable shows us the mercy and the desire for love of the father. In the first case, he runs out, recognizing that the son has come back and wants to be reconciled with the father. And he runs out to his son and he puts the ring on his finger and puts the robe over him and says, This son of mine who was dead has come back to life. And on the other hand, we have the other son, who the father comes out and pleads with him, saying, Everything that I have is yours. Just avail yourself of that. Come to me. Be with me. Be reconciled to me. This is the two sort of microcosms of the human condition. We're either out there, we're doing what we want to do, or we're in here but not really fully loving or fully being with the Father and taking part in that divine life. And in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we have him talking about the who is God who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. There's this great reconciliation that is the central message of Catholic Christianity. So, when we come to this parable and we come to this letter from the Corinthians, we have to realize that it's the promise that has been given to us in all of these things, that not only through the sacrament of reconciliation, through confession and forgiveness of sins in, this, in that sacrament, but that it's also this God who desires to draw so close to us that he dwells within our own heart and that he gives himself totally to us and asks that we give ourselves totally to him because it's inside of that that we live in the divine promise, that we recognize the love of the Father and we revel in it. We give ourselves to him and he gives himself to us. I look at this first reading from the book of Joshua, too, that they're talking about the celebration of this Passover and how the Israelites are now eating the fruit of the land, the produce of the land, and the manna ceases. Why is that? Because this is the fulfillment of the promise. The Israelites are now living in the promised land, and they're eating the fruit of that land. The promise has been fulfilled, and God is with them in that promise. This reconciliation that happens is the coming together of God and humanity. That's the reconciliation there. And when we come to the altar every week at church, the Catholic 
doctrine of what's happening here is so, so incredible. We offer these small gifts of bread and wine, and we give tithes of our money. Why do we do that? Well, this money that we're giving is not simply funds so that the lights stay on. That's not it. The money is taking the place of our very selves. What we see there is that we're giving a pledge of all of the time that we've spent at work. We've given a part of ourselves, honestly, and we've placed that on the altar. And we've placed the bread and wine on the altar as well. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the priest, acting in the very person of Christ, offers these gifts to God. And these gifts of bread and wine are transubstantiated. The substance of the bread and wine is changed into the body and the blood of Christ. The earthly and the heavenly come together. The human and the divine come together to be reconciled with one another. The bread and wine cease to exist in a certain sense after the consecration and the transubstantiation. There is no longer any bread and wine. There are things that look like bread and wine, but they are in actuality and in substance, the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Christ. Again, the earthly and the heavenly come together and they are reconciled with one another. And it's the same with the gift of our tithe, our money, our, our resources, that these are offered to God and they are elevated as representatives of us on the altar, that we might no longer simply live a human existence apart from God, but that we might be reconciled to God. The early church fathers recognized this and said, that God became man so that man might become God. This reconciliation, this message that we are entrusted with, is nothing more or less than God elevating us to himself, to partake in that divine life. Even if we've gone far away, like the prodigal son, or even if we've been sitting in church all of our lives, simply observing rules, simply trying to be good Christian people out of some sense of obligation or servitude. It's an invitation into the divine life that we might come into the sacred heart of Jesus, and there we might be formed, warmed, and transfigured into that very likeness of God who is so close to us and who has entrusted us with this ministry of reconciliation. So throughout these upcoming weeks of Lent, we have a quick opportunity before Easter to be reconciled to God in the sacrament of confession, to confess our sins. If it's been a while for you, please go back and just tell the priest that, Father, it's been five years, it's been 15 years, it's been 40 years since I've gone to confession. Can you please help me? I don't know how to do this. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And the priest will be more than happy to guide you through it, and you'll be reconciled with the Father. And not only in that sacrament of reconciliation, but to take that sort of relationship to the Eucharistic table where we celebrate this most sacred exchange, this wonderful thanksgiving, this great gift that God has given us, his very self, his very share in the divine life, that we might be elevated to be with him forever.
With that, God bless. I hope your Lenten observances are going well. We're more than halfway through, so stay buckled in and stay in the state of grace. And God bless, friends.